0: Welcome back to the South African Border Wars podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode six and we're focusing on the period in the mid-1960s. The concerted campaign against South Africa's mandate to run southwest Africa began in 1960 with the shock of both the Sharpeville Massacre and the old location massacre in Wintook sealing Pretoria's fate. All armed movements have their trigger moment and these two triggered the ANC in the first instance and SWAPO in the second. And in both cases, The South African police were involved and protesters were shot in the back in a kind of bloodlust that was very difficult to explain away as the protesters were also unarmed. All sorts of excuses have been trotted out by the usual suspects regarding these two incidents, but the reality is they're radicalized and already angry people. Later, Swapo said the old location shooting did not lead to the overwhelming support for their struggle they believed would follow diplomatically. Far worse things were going on nearby such as the Congo Rebellion, with its tales of brutality at a time of heightened tension during the Cold War. As Willem Steenkamp writes in his seminal work on this story, The South African Border War 1957-1989, to 1989, the UN simply denounced South Africa and life continued as before. The Americans in particular would have stymied further Security Council action anyway, and it was naive of SWAPO leadership to imagine that allies in this war would simply step aside over bad public relations, as vicious as these two shootings were. Liberia and Ethiopia were the only black members of the old League of Nations prior to the UN who went to the World Court now to charge South Africa with a breach of mandate. Swapo leader Sam Nijoma then fled abroad and continued mobilizing both military and political support in exile. As I mentioned in episode 4, Swapo had set up provisional headquarters in the Tanzanian capital Dar es Salaam by March 1961. Savimbi made his way back to southwest Africa and was promptly arrested and then made the fateful decision to leave the country once more and set up his HQ closer to the field of battle in the Zambian capital Lusaka. Swapo's armed wing, the People's Liberation Army of Namibia or PLAN, was training for incursions into southwest west based on the concept of an armed struggle change through revolution was the call meanwhile back in vintuk the internal arm of Swapo continued to function it was never shut down or banned like the african national congress in south africa even during the terrible war that was to follow as the movement armed itself and trained up one eye was being kept on the legal action by the ethiopians and the liberians what would the world court decide eventually the court did not make a decision on the merits of their case. Instead, it decided by a narrow decision, settled by the chairman's casting vote, that Ethiopia and Liberia had no right or interest in the matter and threw out the case. African countries then took the case back to the United Nations General Assembly, infuriated, expecting the world court to have ruled in their favor. Finally, The General Assembly resolved that South Africa's mandate should be terminated because of the failure to carry out its obligations. That decision was toothless. Who was going to force South Africa out? It was the Cold War. America and Great Britain had sympathy for the country, which had already faced a concerted effort from revolutionary nations like Cuba on America's doorstep, offering to help all downtrodden people of the world overthrow their oppressors They were a threat. Furthermore, they were using Russian arms. The UN became a swear word for the apartheid government, a group of nations it believed that was doing what the English had tried to do in the Boer War, destroy the Afrikaner nation. Of course, by now that storyline had morphed, as I mentioned, into Hendrik Favut's narrative of working to destroy the white nation as a whole. But nuance disappears when there's blunt force propaganda going on. Politicians on both sides of this ideological fence were to claim many things over the next few years. Firstly, the UN sent a team to investigate complaints of mistreatment of blacks in the north of southwest Africa, in Novemberland. They toured in 1962 under the leadership of Filipino Victorio Carpio and Dr. Salvador Martinez de Alba of Mexico. After a few weeks touring the region, These two issued a communique in May 1962 saying all went well and there was no threat to international peace. There was no genocide nor signs of overt militarization. But by the time these two had returned to New York, that communique was torn up and both men issued a final report to the UN Special Committee for Southwest Africa. In that, the two excoriated Pretoria, which must have come as a shock after all the schmoozing the nationalists had done. It was clear at the time there was some confusion, and South Africa's apartheid government continuously brought up the fact that the UN could not be trusted because it had changed its communique. It hadn't, and it was jaw-droppingly naive of the nationalists to continue arguing for their position as a white minority at the United Nations, with a large number of black post-colonial nations clamoring for change. So this UN communique focused on one specific part of the entire mandate question, but Pretoria was intent on reading everything, desperate almost, into one initial report. The entire UN process up to this moment ran counter to their view. South Africa was not welcome to run South West anymore, and yet Pretoria continued to grasp at anything that appeared to give them the right to continue. Yes, history is 2020, isn't it? But at that time, voices inside both South West and South Africa were warning that the population was not passive. The intellectuals in southwest Africa had taken note of the independence war in Angola and the decision to grant independence to Zambia and Ghana, Kenya, Tanzania and the Congo and a host of other countries after World War II. Swapo's armed wing plan was now recruiting like crazy and almost a thousand condres were gathered in different ways from the promise of education to the promise of adventure. There are some now who say that many in Swapo were tricked into believing in the armed struggle. Again, those people generally spent very little time as equals listening to the people of Southwest. There were very few who joined thinking that they were going to get a degree in biology from some Soviet university. It's a laughable claim that the would-be future freedom fighters or terrorists, whatever you want to label these men and women, were tricked into signing up. They knew exactly. What they were going to do. So the basic training began in Tanzania, and others were sent for specialized training in Algeria, Cuba, Egypt, China, the USSR and North Korea. Swapo wanted to work more closely with UNITA, that was the Angolan independence movement led by Jonas Avimbi, which he formed in nineteen sixty five after losing faith in the FNLA. The main reason was that UNITA was very active in the South and could be useful as an ally. Ivambos and the people of southern Angola are the same broad ethnic group. Their language is similar. This relationship, though, would not last the coming Angolan civil war, as you'll hear. Swapo also began talking to the Caprivian African National Union, or KANU, as a form of insurance. If Savimbi was supporting Swapo in the north, KANU would support Swapo in the northeast. KANU enjoyed the advantage of operating from neighboring Zambia and was supported fully by Lusaka. Don't forget The Portuguese still controlled most of Angola at this point, so it was very difficult for Swapo to operate across the Kunene and other rivers from southern Angola. At this stage, borders were still sacrosanct, so Swapo could build up its presence to the north and then infiltrate at a good time. Of course, as Angola collapsed internally when the Civil War began in the mid-70s, that would change, but this was almost a decade away. Swapo's plan was to use the geographical weakness that South Africa faced. Swapo would work with Kanu insurgents as they moved westward inside Zambia, then cross from Zambia into Angola. Meanwhile, Kanu would continue south across the Rio Kano River into the Caprivi Strip and lay mines as well as politicize local people. Swapo though continued tracking westwards, then would swing south into Avambaland, which is precisely what happened in september nineteen sixty five. Trying to stop them were a handful of members of the South West Africa's police force. Considering there were only 600 police officers across a territory 20% bigger than Texas, that was a pretty hopeless task. Pretoria had got wind of these movements, but they still refused to mobilize the South African Defence Force. The Swapa insurgents began a series of political activations in Ovambaland, providing a few dozen youngsters with basic military training before sending them back home to await further orders now that was not strategically very clever dozens of teenage boys suddenly appearing after a period of disappearing is a highly suspicious event and avambaland elders began tipping off the security forces that something was going on by the way a similar process was unfolding in nearby rhodesia where zanu and zapu guerrillas were embarking on pretty much the same strategy so in southwest Swapo's idea was to set up a base or two inside the territory of operations. They began developing a series of bunkers and hidden trenches in Ngulumbash and feeding groups of insurgents across the border to bolster numbers for planned attacks on civilians and military targets. The September 1965 group was joined by another in February 1966, which planned to infiltrate further south. But on the way, they appear to have lost their bearings in the bush somewhere in Angola, and murdered two Angolan shopkeepers, as well as a wandering Avambaland man, thinking they were now inside South West Africa. The group then broke up and headed home, having committed their act of revolution, albeit in the wrong country. Three were nabbed in the tribal territory of Kavango because they were not local, and people living there were suspicious and tipped off police. The rest melted away. In July 1966, a third and larger group managed to cross the border but were a mishmash of cadres trained by half a dozen different communist nations and then formed up to conduct cross-border operations. They were not cohesive, nor were they well-armed, with a handful carrying AK-47s, while the rest travelled with assegais and bows and arrows. This group began a campaign of targeting and killing of Vambaland chiefs. They also shot up a white farmer's house in the Grootfontein district further south which unnerved the South Africans. The armed struggle proper had begun. The unit also attacked and shot up the Southwest African border post at Oshikango, but did not seize the building. They were conducting classic guerrilla warfare. The Boers had done the same thing so well against the British nearly 70 years before in the anglo Boer War, so it was going to be an ironic war for the SA Defence Force. In a move that was to be copied over and over in the coming 23-year war, the South Africans responded in the late winter, a month later, in August 1966. That's the best time to conduct operations if you're using vehicles, because the roads are passable, and more importantly, the bush is thinner, as winter is the drier season. Easier to spot the insurgents moving in the dusty, dry landscape than midsummer with its thick bush and impassable rivers that suddenly flow. Because of the distinct lack of air transport, the South Africans would be stuck with a land-based logistic support operation where their troops moved by road instead of being able to be airlifted in their thousands in and out of operations. This was to skew the war in the coming decades, as we'll see, although the first mission actually was carried out using helicopters. That was not going to be possible later as the South African soldier numbers went up to a few thousand at a time. In 1966, The South Africans knew where the insurgent's base was located, and it was now August, winter. The vegetation was thinner, there were no thunderstorms, perfect for a limited air-based operation. Swapo's base at Ungulumbuash in the northwest of Wawamberland was targeted by 100 SA police with some one-parachute regiment troops providing specialized support. There were a few vehicles deployed, particularly civilian Fords, but this one saw helicopters used to great effect. Ngulumbash was set up by Swapu's was John Nankudu, and he was planning to train around ninety insurgents there. The area is more thickly forested than other parts of Vavambaland and picked precisely because of this fact, although the dry winter had thinned out their forest hideout. Nankudu had dug fairly deep bunkers as well as covered trenches, which made the base extremely difficult to spot from the air. But early on the twenty sixth of August nineteen sixty six, Eight helicopters landed the SAP and parachute detachments, which swept through the bunkers in minutes. There were only 17 insurgents at the camp. This has become known as the first engagement of the South African border war. Two insurgents died in the attack. Nine others were captured. The rest managed to escape the initial raid, although the police tracked most down. Some who escaped were captured years later, including Lamek Etete, who was arrested in 1969. SWAPO and PLAN blamed local spies who had passed on intelligence to the South Africans. Sam Njoma held a council meeting shortly afterwards where he promised they would not make that mistake again. They had trusted locals but had been let down. Because many of the SWAPO members were not locals, they were seen as a threat by local tribal leaders. The SA police made a note and part of future Defence Force Hearts and Minds campaigns would include the use of traditional leaders in remote areas. Locals passed on more information and within a few months, 45 insurgents were in jail. Prime Minister John Foster had decided to go public on the same day that Ngulumbash was overrun by the South Africans and he told Parliament that, I want to make it clear that we have to deal here with an advance guard and that it cannot be excluded that more of such groups will try to cross our borders. A month later, Two homes belonging to South Africans were set alight at the Oshikongo border post. Then a spate of incidents were reported in December as the summer rains arrived to thicken the vegetation. The insurgents launched an intensive recruiting program in Novemberland and the Caprivi, then carried out armed attacks on local tribal headmen. A white farmer with the name of P.J. Briot was shot and wounded in an attack on his farm in the Grootfontein district. The SA police were ready and moved immediately. By Christmas 1966, their actions had led to the death of eight insurgents. Fifty-nine others were captured. A year later, in September 1967, 37 plan members were put on trial in Pretoria. They were charged under the Terrorism Act and Suppression of Communism Act. Many others would follow, as we'll hear. Meanwhile, Swapo was escalating, just as Foster had forecast. Early in January 1968, Plan began infiltrating the Caprivi Strip, realizing that Avambaland was going to be a harder nut to crack. They switched their tactics. I've spent time in the Caprivi, and it's a beautiful but really remote part of southern Africa. Back in 1968, it was even more remote, so much so that it had never really been colonized. Local people did not immediately support Swapu or Kanu with any vigor. There were no white farms and very few South African officials, so Swapo decided to kill traditional leaders instead, regarding them as puppets of the system. By now, the SA police had moved a large number of men into the region, and they immediately responded. This led to a series of ferocious firefights between the insurgents and the SA police. One of Swapo's top field commanders, Tobias Hanyeko, was killed in a firefight on a barge on the Zambezi River and eventually By March 1968, 160 insurgents had been captured. South Africa conducted a number of show trials. The first featured a military leader called Herman Toivo Yotoivo, who appeared in Pretoria in June 1967, and was accused number 21. His speech at that trial galvanized many and had echoes of Nelson Mandela's speech at the Rivonia treason trials in 1963 and 4. He said, "We are Namibians, not South Africans." We do not now and will not in the future recognize your right to govern us, to make laws for us in which we had no say to treat our country as if it was your property and us as if you are our masters. He was sentenced to 20 years on Robben Island, spending most of that time in Section B with ANC leaders like Nelson Mandela, Walter Susulu and others. After 16 years, he was released in 1984 and after Namibian independence, and what surely must have been the ultimate irony, Toivo Yatoivo ended up as Minister of Prisons and Correctional Services. With that small ironic aside, we'll halt and secure the perimeter. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. You can also send me a note on Twitter at Des Latham or email me through the website abwarpodcast.com. Until next, goodbye.